The Energy Gang is brought to you by Solar Edge, a global provider of solar inverters and solar panel optimization electronics. Solar Edge is a leader of the DC optimizer market, a leading supplier of inverters to the U.S. residential market, and the top five supplier to the U.S. commercial market. The company is active in over 91 countries, having shipped over 11 million power optimizers and over 450,000 inverters. To find out more about Solar Edge's inverters and optimizers, visit SolarEdge.com. The Energy Gang is also brought to you by Mission Solar Energy, a solar cell and module manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas. Mission Solar's U.S. facility operates 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, offering state-of-the-art engineering and outstanding quality. Mission Solar's modules provide world-class performance and guaranteed long-term reliability. Visit Mission Solar at the upcoming Solar Power International Conference at booth 1059. You can also find out more about Mission Solar's cells and modules at missionsolar.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. This week, big development banks are pouring billions of dollars into energy projects. But are they doing it in a way that will actually decrease energy poverty? We look at how to speed up energy access by changing the way we think about traditional investment. We'll also revisit the contentious debate around energy access. Then, are prominent business journalists willfully ignoring the growth in U.S. clean energy jobs? Finally, America sees its first climate refugees, a sign of things to come. Catherine Hamilton of 38 North Solutions is in Washington, D.C. Hello, Catherine. Hi, happy to be here. And Jigger Shaw of Generate Capital is in New York City. Hey, Jigger. Hey, how's it going? Excellent. Two quick housekeeping items before I start the show. I mentioned them at the end of last week's show. We have a live episode at Solar Power International coming up on Wednesday, September 14th. And we have a live show at South by Southwest Eco on Wednesday, October 12th in Austin, Texas. Come see the three of us converse and argue live. We love to see our listeners in person, so that'll be a lot of fun. Now to our guest. He comes to us from outside of London. Aaron Leopold is the Deputy Advocacy Director at Power for All, a partnership between private sector companies and NGOs working on distributed energy in developing countries. He's also, uh, he serves on the advisory group for the Green Climate Fund, and he's on the board of directors for the Alliance for Rural Electrification. Welcome, Aaron, how are you? I'm doing really well. Happy to be here. So I want to talk firstly about institutional barriers to energy access. And uh, you and I were chatting yesterday, and you brought up a couple good points. And one that might actually seem counterintuitive is that development banks are set up to spend gobs of money, but many argue they're not spending it in the right way. Between 2000 and 2014, the World Bank Group alone invested $63.5 billion in electricity access. But we still have a billion and a half people without access to energy services. And, you know, the World Bank itself says that under a business-as-usual scenario, we may actually have more energy poor by 2030. What is the disconnect here? Yeah, this is uh, one of the great riddles of the energy access conundrum, that we have massive amounts of investment, we have massive attention to the space, uh, but we're not really solving the problem. Um, and one of the reasons for this is, from, from our perspective at, at Power for All and, and within the 
uh, distributed energy space, and I also work for a nonprofit uh, called Practical Action that has been working on uh, energy access for about 40 years now, is that we're seeing a lot of investment into what we know how to do without really talking to the people that we are trying to serve in the communities that remain unelectrified. Um, so what we have is 85% of the unelectrified population in sub-Saharan Africa, which is over 600 million people. 85% of these folks live in rural, very remote, decentralized communities uh, where it is just economically unfeasible to bring massive infrastructure. And also, on uh, just looking at the timeline of these uh, massive projects, uh, bringing them to the entire world will take uh, decades, uh, and, and this is why the IEA and the World Bank estimate that we're going to be seeing more energy poverty increasing over time due to population growth rather than less. I mean, that's pretty stunning. We as a world, many of these banks and you know, large global institutions have come together and said, let's solve energy poverty by 2030, and here's how we do it. And now all of a sudden, one of the biggest actors is saying that it could increase under the status quo. That's really dramatic and something that I didn't actually realize. Yeah, so the World Bank uh, hasn't said it itself, but its its own independent evaluation group, kind of the auditors of, of their projects, have looked at the approach that the bank is taking and said that this is leading us down the following path towards increased energy poverty. And this is why the Power for All Consortium and Partnership was, was created, because these institutions, as actually uh, in one of your previous podcasts in, in 2013 with Justin Gway a couple of years ago, this was already well known that these institutions are set up for the big infrastructure investments that you noted at the outset of this conversation. Whereas the, the giant disconnect here is that a lot of these small communities, the projects that are going to deliver the first bits of energy access, um, at either meaningful levels of power or at kind of tiny levels to get things started are much smaller deal sizes. And so the kind of the due diligence and the handholding processes for going through millions of, of these kind of small scale, small scale transactions uh, in the project development process and, and uh, business development process are too much for individual institutions to handle. And this is why we talk quite a lot about um, really bringing together the decision makers and the funders in this space to talk about making a one-stop shop to make it easier for all of these disparate actors to figure out how they can get support, but also to create intermediaries, um, really looking at a cadre of, of either companies or organizations such as uh, SunFunder uh, to really come together and do this aggregation that is so difficult for these big development institutions and for, for commercial financiers. I mean, there are tons of big commercial banks that I've talked to over the past couple of years that are really curious about the space, but they don't know how to engage. And they have essentially the same problem as, as the development banks. They need it first to be de-risked by the development banks, but in order to do that, the development banks, ha banks have to get their feet uh, in this pond. Uh, and, and I guess it's, it's one of those things where it's a little bit chicken and egg, but uh, you have to start recognizing that the big infrastructure is not going to be the solution. And we have to take a bottom-up approach to this. Well, can I, can I start from a slightly different place? I think that the previous conversation sort of was a bit confusing around how much money is actually being spent. As I see it, I mean, you know, it's, it's only in the hundreds of millions of dollars that's actually being spent to help the 2 billion people 
that don't have good energy access connections to get connected. Places like South Africa have permanently written off 20% of their population where ESCOM is no longer trying to connect those people, right? So, so when we talk about the billions and billions of dollars that are getting spent, like SunFunder just raised $50 million, right? I mean, when you talk about mobile solar on Copa or even grid connections that India or other people are trying to do, the most of that is to connect industrial capacity that is located in rural areas. They have no interest in connecting poor people. Yeah, you're exactly right, Jigger. I mean, this is this is one of the kind of travesties is that the problem is in in many respects is that we don't have people that are disingenuous or that are really saying one thing and, and doing another. What we have is people doing what they know how to do. Uh, these investments into rural industry, um, urban centers, big transmission, big generation, this is, this is the energy industry. This is what is bankable. This is what is, uh, you know, what engineers are trained to do. And so uh, when you look at the small deal sizes of these distributed energy companies, which you uh, named before, um, they're still testing the waters of you know, what actually works to deliver energy services to rural communities. And what they've proven in the past five to seven years is that they've got something hot. Uh, and that this really works, these small-scale solutions. Um, and small-scale does not mean piecemeal. It does not mean, uh, you know, kind of brushing the problem under the rug. These small-scale solutions are actually delivering the energy services that people need, and they need to be taken seriously. And the companies like Mobisol and Mcopa are really proving every day that not only are the repayment rates better than in most OECD uh, lending situations, but that they are actually del delivering services that people can and do uh, really want and want to pay for. So it is uh, now kind of the responsibility of the development sector to take these models that are being proven and kind of mushroom them up in terms of uh, size and in terms of support. And are you, Aaron, seeing um, like NG, uh, former GDF Suez, uh, as as they um, invest in B-Box and companies like that, you're seeing sort of the larger players taking bigger positions in the more distributed technologies? Yeah. So, I mean, this is something that is also kind of forgotten when uh, some of the detractors of, of these uh, sector of the sector really kind of talk about how it's it's not really playing into the future of energy. But you see... Solar City investing into off-grid electric. You see NL Green Power investing in Powerhive, which is a really interesting mini-grids company. Uh, Eon is testing the waters of mini-grids in East Africa. And D-Light, which is a, a small uh, solar lantern and solar home system manufacturer, have also gotten investments from Solar City and from Tesla. So you're seeing a lot of really interesting players dive into the space and try to figure out how they can either get equity stakes in what's working already or figure out if they can go it alone. Because as we know, in both the United States and in the European uh, utility space, uh, things are kind of up in the air as to what future business models are going to be profitable and where future money is going to be going. And everyone's sort of rethinking their space in the 21st century energy puzzle. And it's, it's really interesting to see that, yes, people are truly interested and they're putting their money where their mouth is, at least uh, in small bits initially. The, the part that I think is most insidious, though, is that you've got folks like Bill Gates, but also Bono, who are basically saying that that we'd rather keep these people in in poverty than use solar to connect them. 
And I'm just trying to figure out, like, I mean, that's what basically what the paper that Ted Norhouse just published in Foreign Affairs was like, why don't you just encourage them to move to cities? We don't want to connect them. Well, okay, that's a gross oversimplification of his argument. No, but... no, not a gross oversimplification. In fact, Bono and Bill Gates actually lobbied the U.S. Congress to get OPIC to include a whole bunch of fossil fuel funding um, for poverty alleviation in this area because they were making the case that solar couldn't cut it. Well, to be clear, the more nuanced argument is that we should be focusing on moving people into cities, focus on electrifying the industrial sector, and getting people interacting with, an, with centralized infrastructure, and then afterward focusing on rural electrification. Yeah, that sounds great. So, Let's leave people in poverty for another 50 years, because the last 50 years, that whole solution that they're pursuing works so well. I'm trying to give someone's intellectual argument some time and space to breathe here. But why? But this is a good opportunity to have a debate. I'm just saying, That's... like, at some point, after you failed for 50 years, why would you possibly believe that that'll work again? Einstein called that insanity. It is about the opportunity cost of one choice over another. The opportunity cost of what does it take to move a community that has heritage and history and tradition and love for a place into an urban area where it is most likely going to be put into a context of a thousand other communities that are struggling in slums when we're talking about the energy poor countries of the world. These are countries with very, very uh, challenging urban contexts that are not ready for a, a kind of mandated urbanization when they're already struggling to keep up with the uh, urbanization that's happening on its own. But the opportunity cost of, of doing that is one aspect to consider. The opportunity cost of bringing people solar power now, small or large, uh, versus waiting the average nine years for a thermal power plant to be developed using development finance and brought to new consumers. So if you're talking the thermal plant route, you're at nine years. If you're talking a grid-tied solar unit of some large magnitude, 100 megawatts or whatnot. This is on the order of you know three to five years in a challenging developing country context, from conception to delivering kilowatt hours. Well, and meanwhile, well, and meanwhile, the small-scale solar companies can do it in in a week or a month. Well, and Aaron, there's an insidious lie in there: is that if you build a thermal plant, what Catherine Wolfham's uh, research has shown is that even when a power line is overhead, they refuse to actually connect the people that live underneath it, right? So it's not like if these people move to cities, they're actually going to get power. They're just going to live in the cities without power. Yeah, exactly. And you'd be surprised a lot of the, uh, actually a large amount of the solar home systems that these companies uh, like MCOPA and uh, Mobisol, et cetera, are selling to uh, are urban households that are under wires, but not connected to them. What drives me completely nuts about this debate is that very often the oversimplification of someone else's side is that it's either or. And I don't think that any of you are saying that we don't want to develop centralized plants in some cases. We don't want to build... No, a I am saying that. I am saying I do not want to develop centralized power plants. I am tired of people failing for 50 years and then telling me, give me another 50 years because I promise you this time it will work. Okay, are you telling me that China and Brazil were massive failures? That their top-down yes. build-out of hydroelectric I will say facilities? that the human rights violations in China are not something I'd like to replicate into East Africa or India. That's a fair point. Right. I do not think that that's the trade-off that we want. We have, for $20 billion, 
we could get if every single one of the two billion people who live in energy poverty asked access to basic uh, services, lighting and cell phone charging, which is what they want. We can do that for $20 billion, which would take us five years. And I think that is something that we should all think that is worth doing. And we have $20 billion. We have that within the budgets of the development banks that are already there, plus the private sector capital that's willing to match it. Let's let's bring this back around to Aaron, because you kind of addressed this in your recent report on the opportunity cost. And you say that the arguments of detractors falsely conflates the means with the ends. What do you mean by that? The means of delivering development are not kilowatts. You do not flick on your light switch and say, thank you so much uh, for these electrons that are passing through all of these technologies. You just want to turn on the lights. And the ends are the energy services. The means by which they are delivered to you, if it's by a hub and spoke massive grid-based infrastructure, or whether you have a little uh, you know, poster-sized solar panel on your roof that through extremely uh, hyper-efficient appliances that are being developed specifically for these technologies, that doesn't matter to you. You still get your lights. You still get to use a clothes iron that runs on 40 or 50 watts that has been developed uh, for these technologies rather than the one that you and I use that need you know half a roof of solar panels if you're doing something uh, made out of linen. So. The, the whole point is that you need to have a good idea of what does the customer want. And we need to stop thinking about poor people in poor countries as beneficiaries and as smaller than thou people to help. We need to start thinking about them as people that we are transacting with. What do you need? What are you willing to pay for? What do you use on a daily basis that is valuable to you? And that's what we need to be asking when we are making energy plans. And that's what uh, financiers and companies who are interested in the energy space in developing countries need to be asking us or asking themselves. Because in the 21st century, about 80% of infrastructure growth is going to happen in the developing world. Uh, we are going to be retrofitting a lot in the OECD countries. But actually, the development is all going to happen down in the poor countries that we are currently telling them or telling what to do rather than asking what to do. So Aaron, I have a question for you. Um, when we think about countries and often they're fraught, the politics are fraught or they'll change, right? When you start a program successfully and it'll kind of put the kibosh on it. But I would love to hear more about what Power for All is doing. And I'm hearing a lot of good things about sort of how you do focus on the need and get compacts signed with countries and with, with organizations, um, you know, whatever they're at suspending the import tax or whatever the, the mechanism is. I would love to hear a little bit more about how that's going and what you've been able to get done. Yeah, so Powerful is a it's a pretty unique partnership and campaign that's CSOs or NGOs and the private sector working on distributed energy to kind of bring people up to speed because one of the biggest problems in the space is the perception of risk for financiers and for donors. Um, and risk is in many respects, of course there are the physical risks and the things that you cannot really control, but risk is so much about trust and experience and knowledge. Uh, 
And what we have at the moment is a lot of people that don't know the state of play. They don't know the state of the technologies. And so what Power for All is doing at the national level in particular is bringing together ministries of energy, ministries of agriculture, ministries of finance, together with the private sector and with NGOs who in these, these countries have the best understanding of the rural communities and their needs. And we are bringing together uh, financiers, to facilitate a dialogue about what are the real needs in the energy space in this, in this country. Because what you have in a lot of countries is, is a real drive to, to develop the way the West did, for better or worse, because they don't want to be more or less told what to do, told to leapfrog. They want to have their own self-determined plan, which is great. And what we are doing is making sure that that is an informed plan based on the best technologies that are available, based on the realities and the success stories in other countries, such as uh, those in, in Eastern Africa, Kenya in particular, Rwanda. You have uh, a number of really interesting success stories that other African and in South Asian governments just haven't heard about, and, and we're bringing those stories to them, and we've been having really interesting success. Success not in you know, securing $2 billion in investments, but success in really seeing pragmatic uh, plans being laid out on how to provide an enabling environment that will, again, lower those perceived risks for people to come into this space to, to really start delivering in new countries and in new innovative ways. And that just brings me to one last point on this debate around how to build out the infrastructure. I don't think regular listeners to this podcast would be surprised to know that I fall somewhere in the middle here. And, uh, I, you know, I do agree with a lot of your points, Jigger. Um, the big one being, you know, it, it, when I look at this foreign affairs piece, the, the authors, uh, Ted Nordhaus et al., argue that energy poverty, the initiatives to address energy poverty, have, quote, overwhelmingly focused on the provision of small-scale, off-grid, and decentralized energy technologies. And that is that's just false. But I will ask you, um, I want to have you expand on this. It also seems a little absurd to me to say no centralized power plants at all. So just help me understand that, because that, that seems like crazy to me as well. No, I'm to, not to, saying to, that we shouldn't build centralized power plants. I'm saying that to suggest that any of that power is going to trickle down to poor people is patently ridiculous. There is so much power needed by cities in these countries. In India, all tier two and tier three cities are denied power on a daily basis to keep tier one cities electrified. So if you were to build a centralized power plants, whether they're solar and wind or whether they're coal and natural gas, all of that power is going to go to keep tier two and tier three cities electrified for longer in the day. None of that power is going to be used to electrify poor people. Yeah. And I suppose, uh, that's where the real rub is. Their argument is that we should serve them last and try to force them into cities as quickly as possible. Right. And I just think as someone who was born into one of these towns, I mean, I was born in India in one of these towns that didn't have adequate electricity to suggest for a moment that these people are next in line to get electricity from central power is patently false. And if you're pushing that agenda, then you either are too stupid to know any better or you're deliberately trying to mislead people so that these people stay in poverty longer. So, Aaron, um, we've seen stagnation at the multilateral banks, and you have described what is structurally wrong 
with these banks, but let's talk about what can actually be done to change that. So what are the, the few ideas that you are pushing at Power for All to actually change the way banks look at financing these projects? Yeah, so one of the challenges that you're just not going to get around is that um, unless you have NL and Schneider and and all of these big companies come in and just start devouring the space, which I don't think is going to happen uh, for the next five to ten years, um, what you need is people who can work together with these small to medium-sized enterprises to really build up the robust business case for investing in them and then aggregate those business cases into um, financing packages that you can take to funders like the development banks, which, you know, there are good reasons why, I mean, the World Bank has, you know, 1,500 or so employees, uh, but in order to deal or to, to do all the deals that would need to uh, be, be finalized in the next 15 years to universalize energy access, by the globally agreed 2030 date, uh, you know, you would need an army of, of transaction advisors to do this. So one of the most important things to develop is financial intermediaries. Um, if we could build up a, a robust um, subsector of the, the energy for development world that is focused on business development and aggregation, this would be amazing. Um, we really have been talking about bundling projects, particularly mini grids, uh, which tend to be much higher on the um, initial capital outlay and much longer in the repayment period than anyone is willing to kind of uh, invest in in the commercial space uh, until they've been much better proven on the ground. And so bundling them together and getting a development finance institution involved uh, would be kind of the ideal scenario. And we've been talking about this, you know, actually Practical Action has been involved with the African Development Bank in trying to create some of these bundles of micro-hydro projects, for instance, over the past couple of years. But they've kind of just fallen apart due to lack of capacity on the bank side, lack of interest, um, and frankly, to uh, a challenge. The other challenge on this uh, in this sector is that, uh, you know, if you're going to do, if you're going to develop 20 mini-grid projects, um, kind of all at once, which is what you would want to do. Um, or at least over maybe a three-year period, uh, you need some really skilled technicians and engineers that are all working in this really minute space to kind of come together at the same time in the same place uh, and then stick around to do all the monitoring and uh, repair and maintenance, et cetera. And this workforce also just does not exist at the moment. And so I just had a really great phone call with a number of folks in the mini-grid space yesterday, kind of convening a group, this group to, uh, to start talking about getting training and capacity building for the workforce itself in place because otherwise you are going to be stuck with this chicken and egg problem of you know if we build it they will come well who's going to build it and you know we we have to kind of try to do this simultaneously build up the financing build up the the uh capacity the human capacity and then also to start looking at you know how it is that the communities the off takers are actually going to pay for this as well and start working with those folks to build up the the load growth capacity of these rural areas at the same time so it's really a three-pronged approach of you know getting the financiers and the the uh, policymakers sensitized to this getting the folks who can actually deliver it in place, and then getting the communities aware of and excited about using and paying for energy. I, I had one more question, and I don't want to light yet another fire under Jigger, but this is about kind of what, what about countries that really want to increase economic development 
industrial facilities, commercial facilities, for those to be developed, and I'm not trying to distract from trying to get people basic services, but who is going to be developing those? Are the, is that up to the private sector to figure out how to invest in the energy infrastructure for those facilities to make sure that there there's something that that people can do in those countries? Yeah, I mean, what would be ideal for me is to look at energy planning, national energy planning on a few different time horizons. Where do we want to be in 5, 10, 20, 30 years? With the end goal having, you know, really beautiful grid level, I can run an arc welder from my kitchen uh, power to, um, you know, really understand how we get there and who needs that first. Um, because as we were mentioning before, as Jika mentioned, you know, even if we're focused, even if we're installing these big power plants, they're going to go to either the people that already have it or the people that can pay the most for it first. So let's have a second track of our energy planning that really looks at meaningfully engaging the population that is not going to be best, uh, is not going to be able to best pay for or best utilize that high level of energy right off the bat. We also have to remember that we're not going to have in the next 10 years industries magically pop up that are going to be able to offtake um, all of this uh, kind of energy that we're supposing should go to the countryside. We need to develop the energy infrastructure course in a correspondence with the development of industry. So we need an appropriate level of power for the needs at hand. Otherwise, we're going to end up with bankrupt the bankrupt utilities that we have in sub-Saharan Africa and in India that we see today, because there's just this huge mismatch. So yes, I agree with you, Catherine, that we need this industrial growth, but it has to be planned intelligently along with its power needs. Yeah, the one other thing I'd add, Catherine, is USAID has many papers that they've written now that show that if you want to increase the GDP, the number one way to do it is to electrify the poor because they they will get about a hundred percent increase in household income through basic electrification and they spend all that money that they make well i enjoy this topic not just because it's one of the most important of our time and in human history but because we get maximum fireworks on this podcast so a lot of fun thank you for joining us aaron aaron leopold is the deputy advocacy director for power for all and uh, he joined us from the UK. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. It was tons of fun. It's time to mention our sponsor. The keynote sponsor this week is Solar Edge. Solar PV systems are not just made up of a bunch of silicon, glass, and metal. They now have brains. And Solar Edge is leading the revolution in making PV systems smart. Solar Edge's insight was to see that a PV system is more than just a solar module. It's an architecture of smart modules, inverters, monitoring, and now also batteries and home load management devices. On the horizon is a future where the smart solar edge inverter controls the smart home, connected to the grid and to the cloud, that controls energy production, storage, and even your appliances. Smart PV systems were just the start. The next step is the smart home and storage, and this future belongs to Solar Edge. To find out more about the future of energy, visit SolarEdge.com. Well, we picked this week's topics to drum up maximum passions from Jigger. So in the second segment, we're going to talk about his newish piece on LinkedIn about solar and wind jobs that got some serious traction over the last couple of weeks. Last week, we dissected a piece from Bill McKibben, and so this week we'll do the same with Jigger. Jigger's argument is that mainstream business journalists, and therefore the public, 
are completely ignoring the tremendous growth in clean energy jobs in the U.S. because it doesn't fit a particular narrative, one that has kind of hung on since 2011, since the Solyndra bankruptcy. In fact, many experts actively make fun of the industry under the false impression that jobs in this sector are science fiction. Let me read a passage from the piece, if you don't mind, Jigger, because I thought it captured the situation perfectly. Clean energy is mistakenly seen as a passive and precious solution for a future society, a delicate sunflower waving in the face of a muscular coal miner, a pristine field of green and sky of blue set against a dirt mound penetrated by a fracking rig. It feels more utopian than aspirational, more luxury than necessity. In short, it doesn't feel American. What made you write this piece? Why do you think people think that clean energy doesn't feel, you know, American? And how does that bleed into the way journalists talk about it? Well, you know, I'm an avid listener to American Public Radio's Marketplace show and my podcast player. And, um, you know, it's the number one sort of business show listened to um, in the United States. And, and you know, they were doing a weekly wrap-up on Friday, and um, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton had just given their economy growth speeches. And John Carney of the Wall Street Journal and Catherine uh, Rempel from the Washington Post were talking about those speeches. And, and they sort of mentioned the advanced manufacturing initiative that Hillary Clinton talked about and sort of poo-pooed how wind and solar would do and said, oh, yeah, that would never work. And I was just like, wait a second. I mean, like, how did that happen? How did we get three really accomplished journalists who just took, you know, one of the largest job creators since the Great Recession and just swatted it away like a fly? And so I just, you know, wrote up some some notes on LinkedIn and then finished a piece and it, it got a ton of traction. And so that's I mean, that's what encouraged me to write it. I mean, the question here is, why does this narrative persist? And I understand that it takes a lot of evidence to shift, uh, you know, a broader cultural or political narrative that ha- that has been around for a while. Um, you know, in 2012 and 2013, when it was clear after the stimulus that a lot of the jobs didn't materialize, like the Obama administration said, there was political blowback, and that worked its way into the the body of journalism. And I even wrote some pieces kind of critical of the promises that we made about clean energy jobs. And now all of a sudden, a few years later, those jobs have materialized. Um, But yet the industry's message, while very job centric, hasn't made its way through to mainstream journalism. Is that a problem of the industry or is that just it takes time for for, you know, the the press to catch up to the reality of things? No, it's it's squarely on the industry. I mean, just to put some numbers on it, and then I'd love to take get Catherine's take on this. Um, The solar industry is up to about 29,000 people that are employed by manufacturing facilities. These are racking companies, inverter companies, some solar panel manufacturing companies and others. And the wind guys are up to 89,000 people. So we're above 100,000 people combined. And we added 20,000 people in the last 12 months alone and expect to add another 20,000 people in the next 12 months. And so these are a lot of people. And you know, when you put it in perspective with the amount of coal jobs that we're losing every year, which is somewhere in the five to 10,000 range, it's more than enough people that can actually get retrained to join our workforce. Yeah, I think part of this might be the messenger. So having sort of some of the big voices out there, I reached out to the leadership of the National Association of Manufacturers, and they have 
traditionally, you know, they, they've joined, they've been on forceful in coalitions to on tax extenders because a lot of what they're manufacturing does has to do with tax credits. Um, but traditionally, they haven't been sort of the voice for the renewables industry. But these folks are saying, look, more and more of their members are finding ways to become part of the s- supply chain for these sectors. And one of their executive committee members manufactures about a third of the bearings that go into wind turbines in the U.S. Um, and this fellow said he talked to a chemical company yesterday that's having success applying its specialty chemicals to solar panel manufacturing. So I think more of the supply chain companies are being are very active in NAM. And when you get voices like like these guys talking about it, I think then mainstream media will listen. Well, but it does. I think just to you know answer Stephen's point directly, I do think it's the fault of the solar and wind industry. I mean, clearly the wind companies have not spent the million dollars that it takes to do a real PR campaign around the jobs that they've created, and the solar guys are the same. I don't know that I would lay it at the feet of the industry fully. I mean, there's obviously a messaging problem here, but they've been very job centric for a long time. And for example, I think SIA's national success politically has been because the under Roan, they became very job centric. So that's clearly helped on, a, on, a, on the lobbying front. But I think you hit on something that is really important in this piece and something that I would give more credit than you do, and that is this sense of Americanism. And we built this country um, on coal. You know, we have this long legacy of this industry, even though it's, you know, eventually very soon going to be a fraction of what the solar industry is. It has this long historical significance. And that's very hard to break. And I don't think five years of of extreme job growth it can necessarily break that narrative that quickly, even though the reality is much different than the way these journalists describe it. No, but I'm saying that slightly differently, right? I mean, what I'm saying is if you watch a wind plant being built or you watch a solar plant being built, it's just as gritty and hard um, as building a fracking rig. It's no different. I mean, there's dirt, there's dust, there's people that could be injured, but we do a really good job of keeping our people safe. Um, it is really difficult and tough work. And I just think that this notion that our stuff is not tough comes from the fact that we've let environmental groups really like carry our message for a long time because they were the ones who were willing to invest in regulatory affairs and lobbying. And I think the solar industry and the wind industry really only t- took over the responsibility for telling its own message maybe two years ago. Um, and I think a lot of reporters still hear it as, oh, it's a greenhouse gas saver and that kind of stuff, as opposed to this is really about putting blue collar workers back to work. I think you hit on it. It's all three of those things. It's probably spending. It's that the message is new. It's that it was historically carried by environmentalists. And it's that we have a long history of fossil fuel use, you know, building this American economy. And it's hard to sort of switch that narrative overnight. Anyway, a great piece. Go check it out. It's on Jigger's LinkedIn page. He posts a bunch of articles there, and uh, many of which get a lot of traction. And we're going to post it on Green Tech Media as well, so you can catch it in both places. Let's turn to our third topic now, and that is on climate refugees here in the U.S. Residents of Louisiana are dealing with the fallout of the floods earlier this month that have uh, killed around a dozen people and displaced thousands. The storm system that caused those floods is the eighth 500-year event since May around the country, which I thought was a staggering number. Meanwhile, a smaller group of Native American residents in Louisiana are getting permanently displaced. 
In January, the U.S. government agreed to spend $48 million to relocate 60 people from the Ile de Jean Charles, which has seen 98% of land eroded due to rising sea levels. There used to be around 300 people there, and now the native people living there currently are worried about permanently losing their culture when they have to move on. In Alaska this month, an Inupiat community living along the Bering Strait voted to relocate, a sign of things to come. According to a recent report, 30 other villages in Alaska face imminent danger from rising sea levels and erosion. So is this the type of thing that you can get more people to pay attention to the long-term impact of climate change? Is this something we're going to have to get used to? Catherine, you pointed us to the Alaska story this week, which you read in the New York Times. What spoke to you about this particular one now? Yeah, I had been hearing for a while from people in Alaska that villages were going to have to relocate, but this piece had just amazing photographs um, that showed what was going on, um, and it and it also showed how difficult. They've been trying for years to take a vote to move this community, and they finally did it. Oh, you know, part of it is because all of their community history is there, their infrastructure is there, their schools. Um, and so they have to figure out how to relocate that and keep all of their cultural and community aspects together. Um, and, and then when they relocate, they're going to have to start building resilience into their infrastructure because this is not going to stop. I mean, this is this is going to continue. Um, the, one, the floods, as you say, in Louisiana, it's supposed to be once in every 500 to 1,000 years. And there in the last 15 months have been these unbelievable floods in Oklahoma, Texas, South Carolina, Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia. It is definitely a sign of things to come. Uh, one thing that the government is doing from a policy standpoint is the Department of Housing and Urban Development in January awarded a billion dollars to 13 states and communities for uh, climate adaptation. This was a uh, partnership with the Rockefeller Foundation. That's a stunning number. I didn't actually realize that that money was awarded. That kind of that flew under the radar. Yeah, the biggest number, um, seventy million, is going to California. But the other states, it's interesting; they're not all on the coastline. Um, Connecticut, Iowa, Louisiana, of course, New Jersey, New York, Tennessee, Virginia, New York City, New Orleans, North Dakota, and Massachusetts. I mean, while a lot of these stories are, you know, real tearjerkers, and I certainly understand why reporters are covering them. My sense is this conversation really, as Catherine just laid out there, like starts to move towards resiliency. And there's a lot of work, particularly in Canada, that's been done with the insurance companies around just basic things that we can start doing to sort of say, um, you know, we need to not um, build in floodplains. We need to start mandating that homes have certain resiliency features that make them less susceptible to insurance losses over time as um, climate change effects start to occur. And this means that, for instance, the solar industry, you know, like works to 80 mile an hour winds in many locations and needs to start building their facilities probably to close to 100 mile an hour winds because you're going to see a lot more storms reach farther inland. Um, But also, like, there needs to be a tremendous amount of work on stormwater management, which we have not been doing for the last 40 years um, to make sure that as large amounts of water come in. I mean, the Baton Rouge storm was the seventh most expensive disaster in the United States' history, and it wasn't even a hurricane. No, and it wasn't in an area where people were supposed to buy flood insurance. 
Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. And so, and a lot of it is getting more expensive as Roger Pilkey has said, because just, you know, the, the folks that are getting hit have a lot more expensive infrastructure, but it's also getting more expensive because we just haven't invested in resiliency. And it's not clear that climate mitigation technologies, whether it's solar or wind or energy efficiency, actually have resiliency measures built in. Well, yeah. And in, and since 2006, HUD has spent $40 billion in disaster recovery in communities that have been affected. So um, it's already been happening. And I think rather than get hung up on the cost uh, to relocate some of these smaller communities, because it is costly to move people, if we can start baking in, as New York and New Jersey have started doing, into re- resilience, into planning for infrastructure, and hopefully the next administration will continue that on that trajectory um, and include clean energy as part of the mix, then I, th- I think we'll be in much better shape. Well, I'm just going to throw one more number at you before we wrap this one up. Uh, the latest et- estimates I've seen are around 200 million people in coastal communities that could be displaced by 2050 because of climate change. 2050 is not far off. It's a pretty dramatic number. It can be hard to wrap your head around, but you know you could just walk through any number of numbers. They're stark and they're very worrisome. Let's tell our listeners something they may not know to wrap up the show, and I will go to you, Catherine, first on this one. Sure. Since uh, kids are summer is ending and kids are getting back to school, I thought I'd mention something back to schoolish. Uh, Department of Energy has this great resource, energy.gov. You can subscribe to it and get kind of weekly updates on programs. They have a ton of resources for science, technology, engineering, and math for teachers and students. They're videos. They're really cool maps and infographics. When I give talks to schools, I've used a lot of their resources, so I definitely subscribe and check it out. And another one of the stories that came through the energy.gov update this week was at Oak Ridge, they have a manufacturing, Oak Ridge National Lab, they have a manufacturing demonstration facility that just printed out the world's largest 3D printed object. It's a trim and drill tool that Boeing uses for passenger airplane wings, and it's 17 and a half feet long, took 30 hours to print, super cool, and uh, they've been experimenting with producing wind turbine blades and a whole host of other things, but uh, it's worth subscribing to energy.gov. Jigger, uh, what's your story? So I wanted to um, have a couple things. One is that, you know, we in Florida got uh, a yes on four. So we had Amendment 4, which basically uh, protects solar from the property tax laws of Florida, um, which now makes solar cost effective for, you know, about 20 percent of the people who live in Florida who are in utilities that are friendly to solar um, can now cost effectively install uh, solar power, which is pretty awesome. Florida's open for business. Um, and then the other story I wanted to cover was that um, was that we had a lot of really good data that came out um, around the fact that natural gas has just surpassed coal in this country in terms of emissions. And so I think you're going to start to see natural gas in everyone's uh, hit list. And the methane emissions issue becoming more important. That's just a yeah. A that whole wasn't even counted. Impact, right. Yeah, that wasn't even counted. This is just on a straight basis. EIA is now saying that that uh, natural gas has more CO2, you know, emissions than coal. And then if the methane piece gets calculated accurately, that just, you know, makes it even worse. Something we'll pick up for a future show for sure. Um, just about an hour before we did this recording, I saw a story come through on Yahoo News. Uh, Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa 
who was responsible for the original production tax credit, said uh, about Donald Trump's stance on the production tax credit, quote, if he wants to do away with it, he'll have to get a bill through Congress and he'll do it over my dead body. So the politics of wind are deeply ingrained in Republican districts around the U.S., as we've discussed. And I think this is probably indicative of how a lot of other Republicans feel about uh, the industry that has created a lot of local jobs and economic activity. And Chuck Grassley, by the way, has just uh, got an amazing Twitter feed. The guy is one of the funniest tweeters I've ever seen, and I don't think he's self-aware about it, which makes it all the better. So follow his Twitter feed. Yeah, and he is like the grandfather of the production tax credit. He will will go to the mat for that uh, piece of legislation. So he's always been a friend of wind. He's a grandfather of a lot of things. He's 82 years old. (laughs) My guess is that he could uh, rally a bunch of support from his colleagues as well. That's where the show ends, but not before thanking our two sponsors this week, Solar Edge and Mission Solar Energy. We're grateful for their support of this podcast. We're really grateful for the support of our listeners as well. Just a heads up that we're going to have a short survey of your listening habits next week, so be on the lookout for that. And as always, you can contact us at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. Don't forget to give us a rating and review on iTunes. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey. And this is The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. Thank you.